Would you like to be part of the next generation of mindfulness meditation instructors? We invite you to take a unique opportunity to earn your teacher certification with Jack Cornfield, Tara Brock, and some of today's leading mindfulness meditation instructors. To get the training you need to guide others in their journey, visit BeHereNowNetwork.com slash get certified. Welcome to the Krishna Das Pilgrim Heart Hour. In this podcast, Krishna Das shares his warm-hearted and down-to-earth path to the divine. If you are interested in supporting Krishna Das's podcast, please go to beherenownetwork.com/kd. I was reminded of. Uh it's a poem from Rumi called Love Dogs. I don't remember the whole thing, but it goes something like this. It said, a man was crying out, Allah, Allah. And his lips grew sweet with the praising. But a cynic walked by and he said, why are you, why are you calling out? Why are you singing? Have you ever gotten an answer? So the guy thought about it and thought, no, I never got an answer. So he stopped singing. And he fell asleep. And in his dream, the guide of souls came to him and said, why have you stopped praising? He said, I never got an answer. He said, and then the guide of souls said, the calling out is the answer. The praising is the answer. And then he said, you hear that moan of, the, of a dog over there calling out for its master? He said, there are love dogs that no one knows the name of. Give your life to be one of them. So the chanting that we're doing is our response to the call that we heard. We think we're doing it. That's what they call delusion. We think we're doing it. We seriously do. Even I do. We all think we're doing it. That's called delusion. We think we're leading the chant. We chose to do this. This is the response to the pull that's already being exerted on our hearts from within our own being. Probably wouldn't be able to prove it in court. But nobody's really gotten busted much for singing kirtan. So. But, 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 Your Honor, uh, I'm not doing it. 
then you're not going to jail. <clears throat> I used to sit around with my guru and nothing ever happened. Nobody bounced up and down. Nobody made howled like a dog. Nobody went into samadhi. Nobody, you know. We just sat there and looked at him. And he giggled and hit us with fruit and bananas and stuff. And that was it. There was nothing going on, except everything was going on. We were sitting in love. We were sitting in love. We didn't know how we got there. But we knew he knew. But he wasn't talking. He was just radiating. But radiating like the sun. The sun doesn't sit around thinking, wow, I'm really radiating, hey? It just radiates. That's the sun. That's what it does. And that's what it's like being with a real guru, a real saint. They're not doing nothing. But they become the sun. That's the only thing that's happening is that love is being radiated out. There's nobody doing it. And they know that. That's what qualifies them for. Whatever it qualifies them for. <laughs> I'll tell you maybe someday <laughs> what that is. Or maybe you'll tell me, I don't know. <clears throat> he never told us to do anything. You know, we sat there and we begged him for tell us to tell us to meditate, tell us to do something. Tell us to do karma yoga. Most people say, karma yoga, I'm gonna do karma yoga. You're not do karma yoga. Anyway, that's a whole other story. But usually when you go to a temple or an ashram, you have to do some seva. You have to clean the toilets before they'll feed you. Not at Maharaji's place. He said, when you come here, you should feel like you're going to your grandfather's house. Everything is given to you. Nothing's required. Where do you go when nothing's required? Even when you go home, somebody in your house requires something from you. Even if it's the toilet that needs to be flushed. Somebody, something's always requiring something from us. Not a saint. Saints have already become everything. There's nothing we can give them. They don't need us. They don't need our love and affection, which is why you can't hold it back from them. There's nothing else you can do except fall down and cry because the love is too much. We can't contain it. Somebody came from a, an ashram nearby. <clears throat> See, yeah. anyway, came from an ashram nearby, and Maharaj said to him, why'd you come? What do you want? And he said, well, I just came to see, you know, the, what goes on here, the chanting. Or the, the, the. He said, nothing goes on here. It's just ao kao jiao, which means come, eat, go. 
<laughs> that's what it was. People would come, you get fed, now get out of here, go. It was ridiculous. I mean, it was mind-boggling, which, of course, I suppose it was meant to be. There was nothing going on except this incredible love that you could not turn away from. Your own stuff would pull you out of it. Sitting right in front of him, sometimes I felt like committing suicide. It was so horrible. I knew it was there, but I couldn't feel it. I just was feeling miserable. Boom, I got hit with a banana. I look up, he goes. You know, and I'm back in it. Just like that. <laughs> it's horrible to be so fucking vulnerable. But I loved every second of it. Because what you're vulnerable to, there was nothing there except love. Nobody's going to hurt you. Why should anybody hurt you? We're so busy hurting ourselves all the time. There's no room for anybody else to hurt us. Oh, but that's another story. The problem is we don't really believe that love exists, you know, that kind of love, unconditional love, real love, love that doesn't need us, that doesn't want anything from us, that we don't have to be good little boys and girls to get. I was sitting with the, one of Maharaji's great devotees and <clears throat> at the temple. And this was just a few years ago. And the grandchildren and nieces and nephews of my Indian parents, who were very close devotees of Maharaji, they all arrived at the temple because the oldest grandson was going to be married. And all the family came together. And um, we were all sitting in the back of the temple, uh, in, the, in the back, kind of in the inner rooms with this woman named Siddhima, who's Maharaji's great disciple. And I was looking out at this group of 15 or 20 young people, right? There was so much love and affection in this family, right? And I knew this family for now like 40 years, 45 years. And um, I was just like, I can't believe it. And I'm just sitting there with my mind, just like, so much love. And, and Siddhima turns to me and said, Krishna Das, do you see? This is what you missed by being born in America. <laughs> right on. This was a functional family. <laughs> Who knew? Who knew there was such a thing? Yeah, you know, that's the problem. We don't really believe it exists. We do all the shit, we meditate, we do asanas, we do the japa, we got the beads, we put on the holy marks. But we don't believe it's really real. And so, nothing happens. Interesting, huh? 
It's a catch 108. That's a good one. <laughs> if we don't do this stuff, nothing's going to happen. But we're doing this stuff and nothing's happening, so what do you do? Catch 108. <laughs> yeah. We do all this stuff, but we don't really believe that we're going to change, we're going to open, that our lives are going to become full, that we're going to be, dare I say, happy someday. It's crazy, huh? We get little tastes every once in a while. Keeps us gone. But our baseline is quiet despair. You know, we go through our lives just getting through, doing the best we can, trying to grab a little happiness here and there. But do we really believe that we are going to ever be that love? Not, not even to say just feel it, but to really be it. I don't think so. And who's to, you know, you can't blame us, can you? I mean, we grew up with Mickey Mouse. They grew up with Ram and Krishna. It's a long way from Mickey Mouse to Ram. But the calling out is the answer. See, it's already happening. We've heard the call, we're doing the response already. That's the beauty of the whole thing. It doesn't matter what we think. This is the response. Turning towards that place within us is the response. It's not... It's a heart-jerk reaction. Boom! The boom's already happened. It's a reflex. We've been touched, and now we're looking, we're moving inside. That's it. Whatever path you're on, whatever you're doing, whatever you're not doing, that's what's happening. We're already moving in that direction. And the only thing that's slowing us up is our attachment to our thoughts. To put it simply, you can say it a lot of other ways, but basically it's what we think slows us up and how we think and the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves that we don't like and we try to fix and we do all this kind of stuff. And blah, 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 blah. That's what slows us up. But there's no hurry. So. The only hurry comes from a very simple fact. And Buddha called this the first noble truth. And that is, we're not happy. We are suffering. We're in pain. There's a lot of dissatisfaction in our life. We're not getting what we want. We're getting what we don't want. 
And that's what drives us to move deeper into ourselves and move us on the path. Just that simple fact that we're sitting on a, on a pin every time we start to sit down in ourselves, we hit something and come up. And those pins, those jolts, are, is all our stuff, our greed, our selfishness, our hatred, our anger, our guilt, our shame. So, that's what the response melts down over time. We keep calling back. We keep making that return call. And little by little, more of us inhabits the, the responder and less of us inhabits all the other bullshit. Little by little, there's a shift. If it happens too fast, they put you away. So, the real change takes time, happens in time, over time. Spontaneous enlightenment took millions of births to, to manifest. Maharaj used to always say, Tik ho jaiga, which means everything will be okay. Tik ho jaiga, tik ho jaiga. One time, uh, uh, the grandson of a very great old devotee of Maharaj's came to the temple up in the mountains. He had taken buses and trains and and to, be, to tell Maharaj that his grandfather, who was a great old devotee of Maharaj, was very, very ill and dying and suffering terribly. Maharaj says, here, take this banana, bring it back to Lucknow, I think it was, mash it up and feed it him, and take hojaika, everything will be all right. So the grandson carries this banana on the train, on the bus, on the, he gets home, he mashes a little bit up, he puts a little bit in his grandfather's mouth, Grandfather dies. Tiko Jaiga. Maharaji's Tiko Jaiga was different than our Tiko Jaiga. <laughs> but the man was suffering. He couldn't let go. It was time for him to go, but he couldn't let go. He was attached to something. Couldn't even let it. So, Tiko Jaiga. One time, uh, Mr. Tiwari, my Indian father, he said to, he said to Maharaji, You always say Tiko Jaiga. Somebody dies, you say, Tiko Jaiga, somebody lives, you say, what is this with this? And he says, oh, you want me to admit I know what's going to happen? Tiko Jaiga. He knew everything. He knew everything. One time, Tuari came to the temple. He lived in a town about 45 minutes away from the temple. And he comes in the temple, and from across the courtyard, he starts yelling at Maharaji. Why did you drag me here? This is a devotee talking to his guru. <laughs> Why did you drag me here? I was happy at home. I had no intention to come. Why did you drag me? Maharaji rises to the occasion. He goes, ah, I drag no one. But for 83 lifetimes we've been together. It had to happen. This is how they played. Not 82, not 84. 
So what are we going to do? Well, we all have choices to make. So make, we should make our choices. We should try to find a way to live that that's, feels good to us. Try to find a way to live that creates some harmony in our lives rather than suffering. There was a little-known saint who said once, uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's all it takes. If we could do that, our whole world would change. If we treated other people the way we would like to be treated, But we're not capable of that right now. Otherwise, we'd be doing it. It takes a lot of spiritual work and spiritual practice to develop the strength to be like that in this world where everybody seems to want to kill you or use you or push you around or get rid of you or jump over you or step on you or use you for their own pleasure. So, the strength that's necessary to treat everyone, anyone, even your enemies, the way you want to be treated, takes a lot, a lot of strength to do that, a lot of inner strength, and a lot of wisdom about the way things really are. A lot of understanding about the results of our own actions and how to plant seeds that we want to grow in our life and pull up the other seeds that we don't want to grow. The seeds of selfishness and using people and shame and fear and guilt. How do we pull up those seeds? Maharaj used to always say, Ram Nam Karnese Subpura Hojata. From repeating these names, Ram Nam, the names of God, everything is brought to fullness and completion. The heart is made full, the life is made full. The karmas are completed and full. It's a ripening process. It's not required to learn anything. What's required is to train ourselves through these practices to release the negativity, to release the thoughts the obsessive flow of thinking that just slaughters us all day long.
That's why we're responding to the call. Because it's the call to come home, to come back, to come home to ourselves. Because a saint, a guru, loves us from inside out. They're not outside of us. Oh yeah, I may be in a body for a while. But the real guru lives inside of us. And that's where the call comes from. And that's where the response takes us. Into our own true nature. whatever you want to call it. So we'll take, uh, we'll do questions and stuff, we'll talk. Anybody have anything to say? How do we take, uh, like, uh, when we have all the these dramas that we like to reproduce, that, uh, how do you say, the dramas we make up that don't, you know, while we're trying to do our spiritual practice, we always say that we have all these problems. Talk a little bit into the mic. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Thanks. When we do our spiritual practice? Yeah, and then we're, we find that we're always... Uh, Jumping around, the mind's always going all over the place. And that's because you're noticing it. That's what happens all the time. Yeah, I know. When you're doing your practice, that's when you notice it. If you're noticing, it's not happening the same way. Usually it's happening completely automatically, and you're not noticing. Noticing is practice. And then it deepens. If you're noticing it, you're not completely lost in it. But you're also... Uh, completely incapable of doing anything about it. But that's also noticing. It's the noticing that changes everything, even the helplessness when you notice that. So you just keep coming back to whatever practice you're doing. The coming back is a fucking miracle. I mean, why do we ever come back? Why do we ever leave? We're gone already. What are you talking about why we ever leave? We're already gone. I'm already gone. <laughs> We're already gone. Why we ever come back and notice that we've been gone is a miracle. That's the fact is that because it's like a rubber band. You, we're stretched and then it, the thought lets go of us. Whack. You're back for a minute. But then you're gone again. But noticing it is the beginning of the process of deepening the being here more. You can't hold on to here. Where is it that you're holding on to? What are you holding on to? You don't know. But you can let go of the, once you notice that the thought's taken you, you rededicate yourself in that minute to, say, the mantra. You're doing japa or something, right? You'll be, the next thing you notice, you're gone. You're coming back already. You 
come back to the mantra again, over and over. And the difference between the, the difference between doing that and never noticing is, is the difference between life and death. You know, there are people who are born, they grow up, they get married, they have a family, they drink beer, they watch TV, and they die. And they never notice any of it. They never say, what is this? This is not my beautiful wife. This is not my beautiful house. Then you have all these beautiful things that you never really actually own. What do you own? You don't even own your own breath. I know. So? Yeah, you just keep going. Remember, we're responding. Try to get over the fact that you think you're doing it. No, no, don't shake your head like that. It's not so easy. It's easy to understand that up here, but it's not easy to stop the thought of me arising. You can't stop that thought. We've spent millions of lifetimes cultivating the feeling of me, me, me. It does not go away overnight. It goes away little by little as we keep returning from being gone to the jumper over and over to the object of concentration or awareness over and over and over and over. If you're really paying attention in a 20 minute kirtan, you'll, you'll come, you'll be coming back more times than you could count. It's just when we start to recognize how gone we are all the time and how little control we have over anything that we think or feel, then you start to get a little bit humble about what this is all about. And you start to look at the saints who have accomplished this with different type of understanding. But what else are you going to do? Right? Go back to sleep. You'll wake up. Then what are you going to do? Go back to sleep again. You'll wake up. Eventually you'll want to stay awake, but you won't be able to. But the wanting to stay awake, the wanting to come home, the wanting to find love is what pulls us again and again back to, back to the path, so to speak. Gets our feet back in the right direction. But it's not easy. There's no button to push here. No matter how many mil micrograms of pure acid you take, you're going to come back. Sorry. And I promise you, I've proven that point. So after a while, you stop getting into the rocket ship because, you know, it's going to have a hard landing over and over again. I'll stay on the earth for now. No sense shooting up in the sky if I'm just going to fall on my goddamn head again. And then you start to get, you accept this as the way it is. You accept the way we, we accept the way we are. We accept our faults, our limitations. And within that, we start to work on them. We start to notice them. We start to transform them. We start to think about other people sometimes. Instead of me, 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 all the time. Very hard, because even when we're doing stuff for other people, we're still thinking about ourselves. Look at what I'm doing for other people. Isn't that great? So those thoughts are not going to stop arising. It's okay. They will. Someday. Someday they'll only be 
Can't say. It's just an image. Won't help. Someday we won't be giving ourselves a hard time. That's enough for me. Anybody else? Hi. Oh, hi. So in the presence of the guru, mm -hmm. um, as a devotee or just being in the presence, the ego, is the ego still active? When is, when is ego not active? Okay. <laughs> then what, what is your, what is your uh, response to the ego yeah. in that presence of love? <clears throat> What's feeling the love? Who's feeling the love? You are. You are it, on the, there's, there's the other shore, and then there's where we live. And over here, it's all ego. It's all me, me, me. The desire for enlightenment is me, 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 too. Meditation is me. I'm going to do this. I'm going to... Because we think we're doing it. So that's ego. And that's the way it is. Eventually, that kind of just dissolves over time. But you need... You know, some of the Eastern teachers growing up the way they do in that culture, they don't really grasp Western, how a Westerner sees themselves. They don't, they don't, some of them, most of them, the real good ones, of course, do, but some of the, some of them, they can't, because they can't conceive that anybody would think like this. They, they never were, they, nobody they grew up with thought like this, so they can't, they, as they come to, one time I had a wonderful, have a wonderful Tibetan Lama I studied with, and we were having lunch together, and I said, Rinpoche, please don't underestimate the ability of Westerners to not understand a damn thing you're saying. <laughs> and he kind of looked at me. But then I noticed his teaching changed a little bit after that. And he kind, of, he, he kind of stopped giving these like very advanced teachings. And he went back to the beginning. Because I think he really looked and he saw that even his so-called advanced students was all up here and it wasn't in here. And it's like that for us. Thinking it doesn't make it so. So having some idea about this stuff is good because it gives us a sense of direction. And it gives us, when we read about these beings and we read about what they've accomplished and we read about how they lived in the world, it's very inspiring. And that inspiration can fuel our, uh, our aspiration. To, to really move deeper into ourselves. But it doesn't mean that just because we have an intellectual understanding of it, that we're not going to kick the dog and yell at our kids and get pissed off and be selfish. It doesn't work like that. It's not enough to have a little understanding, even a lot of understanding. In fact, in the advanced stages of meditation, you have to purposely forget everything you learned intellectually. You have to turn all that off. But let's worry about that later. So I wouldn't worry about ego. It's all ego. You know, I was sitting in the jungle once with a very old yogi. At the time, he was 163. 
Now he's like 188, I think, something like that. And uh, he really, by the way, I just said that quickly, but it's true. Once he looked at me and said, you remember Lincoln? Oh, no, no, no. You, you, that we, we, we read about it in the papers when he was shot. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> and he had finished his 12-year course in Ayurveda in Benares. He couldn't remember when sometime in the 1890s. So, so he looked at me once and he goes, uh, hmm, you have to develop willpower. And my first thought was like, willpower? What do I need that for? Now, if you don't think that's completely insane, you need to be uh, institutionalized just like me. I thought, what do I need willpower for? And he kind of went like this. He's, he heard my thought. So he did something inside of me, and he showed me what he was seeing in me. And I went, oh, my God. And I saw that I was going through life, I was floating. I was floating. I had no direction. I wasn't going after anything. I wasn't, I wasn't focused. I wasn't trying to, I wasn't honoring my desires. I wasn't honoring the things that I wanted. I wasn't going after the very things I wanted. It was like taking food that was in my hand and throwing it over my shoulder instead of putting it in my mouth. And he saw that. And when I saw that, I flipped out. It really was powerful for me to see that. Willpower is, I'm lifting my arm, I'm grabbing the ice cream, I'm throwing it in my mouth, I'm eating, I'm chewing. Willpower is, use, is directing your will. And what directs your will? Your desires. And along with that comes the fears and everything, all these things. So you, instead of going here, you, you take this instead of what you really want because you're afraid if you, you know, all that stuff. So I saw that I was not connecting to my will and my own desires. And if I wasn't going to do it, who was going to do it? If I wasn't going to feed myself, who was going to feed me? If I wasn't going to try to get the things that I myself wanted to have in life, how is it going to happen? It was really a powerful moment for me. There's not like holy life and daily life. I don't know about you. I wake up in the morning in one place. I don't wake up in two places, right? Holy way and a, and a, you know, a regular way. It's just me waking up in my day. And as far as I know, there's only one of me in one day. So there's not two things going on here. And I saw that if I didn't exercise my will, if I didn't get a little focused in my daily life, my so-called spiritual work, it would, it would never manifest. Nothing was going to happen because I wasn't here. I wasn't present. I wasn't with myself. It was really powerful. One day... <clears throat> Same guy, he looks at me, he leans over and says, ah, this is back in like the middle 80s, right? I wasn't singing, I wasn't doing nothing, right? He goes, ah, you're going to be famous. So I looked up at him and I go, 
and rich. <laughs> he laughed, he laughed, and he came close to me nose to nose, eye to eye, and he goes, famous. <laughs> well, I gave him my best shot, right? I mean, I figured, you know. Anybody? I was curious, you don't talk a lot about um, being born Jewish, though it did come up last night, um, and how you're Jewish on your parents' side. And um, you've also mentioned that Maharaji um, talked about Jesus quite a few times. And, Who is Jewish. Right? Yeah. <laughs> as we discussed last night as well. Yeah. Um, and so I was just wondering if at this point for you, where Judaism is in your landscape, in this landscape, if at all. Um. <clears throat> I, I was raised, uh, you know, in a very, in what they used to call a reform Jewish family, reform Judaism. Uh, it was pretty much unformed Judaism. You know, uh, the, the biggest thing was our family dinners when everybody fought over the best parts of the turkey and yelled and fought with each other, you know. Um, it was a cultural thing. It wasn't religious. It wasn't spiritual. Not only wasn't it religious, it wasn't even, it wasn't spiritual. There was, and by spiritual, I mean something that leads you to finding something, right? There was no sense of anything to do about anything except complain. That was just a cheap joke, I'm sorry. So, um, but later on, much later on, I discovered like the Baal Shem Tov and the early Hasidic rabbis, and I read a lot of their stuff, and they certainly were plugged in. So, but I, I don't know. I woke up, this happened to me in India. This, my karmas went, were from there, you know, and this is what resonates most deeply with me. And that's why I do it. I don't really have, I don't feel like I have much to say about it. It's just the way it is, you know. But I, I certainly honor all the, a friend of mine, Rami Shapiro, is a wonderful, Zen rabbi, and Bernie Glassman is a Zen Buddhist master, and all these, you know. Uh, but as far as Judaism as an organized religion, this isn't really, I don't have much relation to that. And neither did my parents, and neither did my grandparents. I mean, they went to church, uh, church. <laughs> Whatever that is. Temple. So did you hear the joke? This is back in the days of George W. So George W. calls the FBI, the CIA, the NSA, and all the spy agencies, calls him into his office, and he says, what is it about these Jews? They seem to know everything before anything, anybody else, before anything happens. They always know, I want to know why. So he said, come back in a week and tell me. So these guys go out and they do all the research. They have a meeting a week later and they say, Mr. President, we figured it out. Really? Tell me. One Jew meets another Jew and they kind of lean over to each other and one says to the other, so new, which means so what? And the other Jew tells him everything. And that's how this happens. And George W. says, I have to experience this myself. So they spend a week perfecting makeup teaching him how to shuffle along and walk like this. 
and they dress him up as a Hasid and they drive him to Brooklyn from Washington, D.C. And they drop him off a couple of blocks from the shul, from the, the little temple where all the Hasids worship. And he makes his way in, he shuffles in, and he sits down in front of a, next to another old Jewish guy and he does his thing like this, you know. And after a while, he kind of leans over to the other guy. He goes, so new? And the other guy goes, shh, they're waiting for the president. <laughs> the one thing I got from Judaism is Jewish humor. I just love it. One more. So this old, <laughs> this old Jewish guy is driving on a mountain road in a terrible storm. And he drives off the road and the car tumbles down and down and down the mountain and it crashes at the bottom. And he's kind of hanging the upside down from the roof. And a highway patrolman pulls up and he runs down. And he gets down, makes his way down the mountain. And he sees this old guy and says, sir, sir, are you okay? Are you comfortable? And the guy goes, yeah, making a living. Ah, uh, I'm quelling. Sorry, I just, you know. <laughs> I had a girlfriend from another country, South American country. She didn't get these jokes at all. Anybody else? Uh, hi. Hi. Uh, I just uh, wanted to ask you about wisdom. Wisdom? Because you, I mean, it's the opening the heart, I, I feel very often through the singing. Mm -hmm. And and then my my question is related to um, the intuition and the wisdom. How, how is, is that developed within your Are own you, experience? Opening the heart is wisdom. It is an intellectual knowledge. That's a different thing. It's not something you learn in books. But opening the heart or your inner self, that's where wisdom is in your being. It's not about studying books. Wisdom doesn't come from books. Intellectual understanding comes from books. Wisdom comes from practice. Wisdom, how, yeah. How do you distinguish when you're in, in a deep space, suddenly you have a much clearer understanding of things mm -hmm. so how understanding what things what I means even these seeds that you were saying you know the ones you want to pull out and the ones you want to plant mm -hmm. no that just happens you don't do it okay you stay in your heart in that open space in being in presence and everything happens the way it's supposed to because you're no longer preventing it from happening by all your stuff wisdom Wisdom, it's not, it's another quality of presence. Wisdom, love, truth, peace, joy. These are qualities of being. They're not things you get from the outside. They're things that come from within, that you recognize within. Directly, yourself. Nobody can tell you those things. There's a lot of study that you can do that can support your practice and, and give you strength and confidence and faith that you're going in the right direction. 
No question about that. But that's not wisdom. That's learning. That's knowledge. That's not from here. That's in here. It's not useless at all. But it's not going to make you happy. It's not going to put you in touch with your essence. Only practice can do that. And grace and all that stuff. Thank you. How are we doing? If there's some important, okay, anybody feels, uh, you know, have something serious, important to you, I'm happy to deal with it. So, somebody there? Yeah. <laughs> I just want to say, we kind of have to get out of here around five. Right, Eric? Where's Eric? Well, Baba Ram Das has said that when you think you're advancing on the spiritual path, just go back and visit your parents. And so <laughs> now that you become so famous and, and spiritual, how is it visiting your family? Do they call you Krishna Das or do they call you by your birth name? And, and secondly, can you share some of your relationship with Baba Ram Das, some of your Special uh, memories of him. Well, both my mother and father have left the body. But when they were still here in the body, uh, sometimes friends would pick my mother up and bring her to the kirtans in New York, right? And uh, she, was, she enjoyed. And um, this woman who drove her out there once told me that one time in one of the fast songs, and everybody was up dancing and everything. My mother turned to her and she said, look at all those women dancing in front of them. Look at them jumping up and down. It looks like, it looks like they're having an orgasm. <laughs> you see, that's my mother. And my father, uh, he had Alzheimer's and uh, we, his, his wife used to bring him to the chants and I would always have him stand up and everybody would, you know, and he just felt so great, you know. And then people, women would come up to say hello to him later and he would say, oh, hi, uh, what's your name? Uh, have we slept together? <laughs> you see, this is, this, is what, this is where I come from. But one time, actually, one of the most beautiful things that happened, really, my father had a long, slow decline into, the, into Alzheimer's. And uh, I used to go visit him every time I went away on a tour because when I came back, you know, I didn't know if he'd remember me. So uh, one time I went to see him and we're sitting there watching the same reruns of Seinfeld again and again and again. And He was sitting in his chair, and I was sitting on the couch, and he was, the television's over there, and he's looking. And then he just kind of looked over at me, and he goes, looking right at me, right? And he got up out of the chair, and he came over, and he sat next to me on the couch, right next to me, and he's looking right at me, and he's going, it's incredible what you're doing. I can't believe it. Traveling around the world, singing to so many people. It's amazing. And he's like completely here. He hasn't been here for months. 
And he's totally, absolutely, completely right here. And he goes on like this. It was intense. And I'm just like, yeah, uh-huh. And he's, but he's, it was so amazing. And he just went on like that for like maybe two full minutes of like, it's amazing what you're doing. I'm so proud of you. This is incredible. And then he got back up, went to the chair, went back to Seinfeld. It's the last time I saw him. I mean, I saw him after that, but he wasn't there. This is so beautiful. One time when, uh, just before he died, my sister was there with him and they were watching a DVD of me singing. And he, he said, tell KD, I'm singing with him in my mind. You know, how beautiful is that? So parents, you know, it's weird, you know, because we're actually made of them. <laughs> you know, it's not like, you know, they're not people we know from far away. We're actually made up of them. So it's quite extraordinary. That's why it's so important. That's why it's such a big thing to our relationship with our, our parents. It's so, it's, it, it's such a huge part of how we feel about ourselves. I really feel that we, the way our parents felt about themselves has a lot to do with the way we feel about ourselves. It wasn't so important how they felt about us. That's big too. But it's more what we absorb about how they treated themselves. We f and it has a lot to do with the way we treat ourselves. And we don't know our parents, you know? We just know them as parents. We don't know what they did when they were out at night, cruising around. We don't know what they did when they were teenagers. We don't know what, how they lived, what they thought about. We don't know them as people. We just know how many times they told us not to eat too much of this and you can't watch any more TV. That's what we know. So it's, it's very hard to really see them as people, even in the best circumstances. I had a couple of uncles that I had known a long time and they knew my father very well. And they started telling me shit about my father. And I went, yeah, I see where I came from. <laughs> it's interesting. It's really amazing. So. One more quick thing about, you know, when my mother was dying. Um, I was with her in the hospital for the last couple of weeks. And uh, so one day, she asked me, she was completely morphinated. Uh, she had cancer all throughout her body. And uh, she was on a, 
a heavy drip and kind of out of it. And there was, she wanted some water, asked me for some water. So I poured a glass of water and as I put it on the, the table in front of her, I kind of bumped the table just a little bit and she went, Rap! and my, I went, like this, you know? And in that instant, I had a complete revelation. And I said, you know, she must have been doing this to me, because I remembered that. But I realized that she was doing that to me before I can remember, when I was this big. And the shape that I've taken as a human being is, is largely in response to the way she treated me and the way she, I reacted to the, the way she treated me. And if you have, there's a picture that my sister and I took with her at my grandfather's grave. And my mother's standing there like this. And me and my sister are like, we, you could see we're waiting for the gut punch. It's the weirdest picture you've ever seen. Both of us are in the, in the same position. We're smiling and waiting to get hit in the stomach. It's, and when I heard, saw that, it was extraordinary. Be, before we can remember, right now, before we can remember, our parents were very busy programming us. The other thing that Siddhima said, you know, I told you about when I was in, in the back of the temple with that family of kids and all the love that was there. I said, another time I said to her, Ma, what is it with Westerners? Why can't we love and why can't we accept love? And I'll tell you what she said. It's kind of strange. First thing she said, what were your parents thinking about when you were conceived? Well, I can figure that out. They said, what were they eating in those days? Meat. And she said, and love was used to control you as a child. Affection was used. Withholding affection and giving affection was used to control you as a child. So right away, we were trained that affection relationships are a business. Give and take. You need something, you've got to show something in order to get something. It's a business. It becomes a business from day one. And we wonder why we have problems with relationships. It's not a mystery. We're looking for love, but we're doing business emotionally. They don't work together like that. So, but on the other hand with my mother, you know, I really had this opportunity to be with her for those last couple of weeks. And at one point she said to me, you're the best nurse I've ever had. And I tell you, it was as if I had waited my whole life to do something for her. That I had waited and waited for the moment where I could help her in some way. And it came like that. It was so beautiful. So beautiful. How are you going to know what the Divine Mother is if you don't know what your own mother is inside of you? 
if you're still conflicted and angry and fearful and all that stuff about a relationship with our parents, how are you going to find something divine? As long as you're, 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 you're still in knee-jerk reactions to, to our, our childhood and all our stuff. The divine is always there, but we're not able to see it. We're too busy. We're, we're only living in reaction and emotional knee-jerk stuff. Clear that up, and there'll be no question about what the Divine Mother is. But you can't get there from here. You can only find that inside when you overcome all the nonsense, all the programming. And to think that you can slip around the backside of all that programming and get somewhere up there, that ain't going to work. You have to get real with that. It's just not going to work. You come crashing. Somebody steps on your toe, and it's over. You can't hold on to these, these dare I say, bliss, more blissful states or less, less conditioned states of mind. They arise when we're ready for them, when we're naturally, because it's our natural state. It's in there. When we uncover that, it arises. You can't try to you try to spend your life grabbing on to one one good feeling, and you think you can never let it go. It's not possible. Most people try to meditate, which means they want to feel a particular kind of feeling, and it's obviously a pleasurable feeling. And if they're not feeling pleasurable, they think they're not work. It's not working. That's not meditation. I don't even know what that is. That's what I do. <laughs> but I don't know what to call it. It certainly is meditation. Meditation is being with what is. Not trying to crank yourself into kind of some exalted state. That's just like drugs. It's no different. Up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. That's not meditation. Maharaji said, I asked Siddhima once, I said, Ma, should I meditate? I figure I'll ask her the big question and then I'll be screwed. I'll really have to do it. I said, Ma, should I meditate? She said, Krishna, in 40 years with Maharaji, not once did he ask me to meditate. He used to say, do, do japa, do the repetition of the name. But he said, the higher states or the more subtle states of consciousness will arise naturally when a person is ready for them. You can't use personal will to grab those states. It doesn't work like that. They, they manifest themselves as you become more at ease with yourself and more open and less judgmental and less reactive and all that. Your consciousness just starts to rise or deepen or whatever you want to say. And at the same time, the catch went away. You need to use your will to remember, to let go. So. Okay. Repeat after me. Ram. Lakshman. Janaki. Jay Bolo. Hanuman Ki. Keep that in your back pocket. You're going to need it in a minute.
श्री गुरु चरण Mama, Priya, Bharata, Sama. 
Sit here, no, 
If we know anything about a path at all, it's only because of the great beings that have gone before us. Out of their love, out of their kindness, they left some footprints for us to follow. So in the same way that they wish for us, we wish that all beings everywhere all of us be safe, 
be happy. That all of us have good health and enough to eat. And may we all live in peace and at ease of heart. At ease of heart with whatever comes to us in life.